Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's just after four o'clock and it's Jambart with you. Tuesday home time. It's great to be back. I had a week off last week, but everything is back to normal. Today, the protests in France for the yellow vests. Who are there? Who are they? Why are they there? And what could the outcome be? Speaking with journalist and researcher Nick McClellan. An opinion piece by activist Joan Coxidge. Analysis of the situation in both Venezuela and Syria with academic and activist Dr Tim Anderson. And finally, the work of the Quaker movement, both in the world for many, many years and in particular here in Australia with um, a visit by Australian Quakers to North Korea late last year. But first, let's hear it for Mr Kevin Healy. A week journalist knowing International Women's Day was celebrated with a serious case of class treachery by a woman which went almost unnoticed, at least among the frenetic gangland headlines of the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin over another woman who had practised a bit of treachery on her clients. Class treachery? Who I hear? Remember an erstwhile regular on this segment, Heather Ridout the Workers, former big supremo of the Troublawazi Chamber of Fat Profits, who kept telling us this country would reach greatness if it weren't for evil unions and lazy avaricious workers making unreasonable demands like wages and conditions. Well, it now turns out Heather was a counter-spy, an infiltrator a plant working deep within the bowels of the enemy, outed by brilliant government sleuths, big economic guru Josh Pride M. Iceberg, Senator James Pader, capitalist's son, and Tim Will Proppert's son, formerly of the Institute of Public Very, Very Private Affairs. This, as Heather still poses as part of the caring business class as a caring employer director of True Blue Aussie Super, and it's her role here that exposed her perfidy. See, industry super funds have suggested, well, the shocking headline says it all, big super flexes its muscles, suggested business should think long-term rather than short-term profit over customers and community, which those who matter interpret as a major threat, with Josh and James and Tim all decrying the industry super funds for daring bring politics into politics increasing their screaming demand for evil unions to be divorced from all that lovely, lovely money. A dangerous development, Josh warned. Superannuation is not a plaything for union bosses nor a platform for pushing their industrial relations agenda, as he decried this aggressive union behaviour. And here's where Heather was exposed. She said the industry funds were doing a good job and should be left alone to work for their members. And it gets worse. Super funds had every right to discuss work practices with caring employers and had discussed issues like the Brazil dam failures with BHP, with bloody huge profits. I mean, how perfidious can you get? How treacherous? 
she has been captured by the union, Senator Peter Capitalist's son said. Shockingly, partisan comments like this show exactly why Trubler was his super and their lobbyists are wrong to oppose independent directors on super boards. The fiercely independent banks and investment giants nodded. All that lovely, lovely money needs fiercely independent directors like us. They shouldn't be the plaything of a dying union movement, Pater Capitalist's son went on, and Heather should remember her fiduciary duties, rather than running the latest talking points of militant unions. And it gets even worse. Truly, truly, Tim, who recently launched an independent, totally unbiased parliamentary inquiry into how Socialist Party franking policies will destroy this country by no longer handing huge, huge shareholders who manage to pay no tax billions from those who do pay tax, exposed Heather for what she is. This woman once participated in Sit down, listeners, sit down. In a Fabian conference, does anything more need be said? No, Tim, that says it all. She's either an apologist for union strangling of industry or completely captured and foolish. Tim obviously knows something we didn't know, listener, but then he is a wise member of Parliament. He knows the Fabians are a threat to capitalism, a fact that had escaped us completely. Comrade Heather. In the middle of all this, the current Chamber of Fat Profits Supremo Jennifer Worcester Cost of Workers, a leader of the relentless campaign to get union directors off super boards and the big end of town on them to control all that lovely, lovely... Here's where satire just can't compete yet again. Jennifer said evil unions were trying to have a say in who should be on company boards, which was none of their evil business. Occasionally we've got to ask whether they ever listen to themselves. Perhaps that exposed infiltrator Comrade Heather wanted to celebrate the working class history of IWD, that it's not just about getting more women on boards or parliamentarians like Kelly Odawire Workers So Evil and Julie Bash Up The Workers, whose commitment to and solidarity with working women is so appreciated. But for the great corporates, it got even worse, as Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo, little Billy Shorten Ambition, told this big business conference he would address slow wages growth. As if he needs to, because Jennifer and the great corporates she represents are all concerned about slow wages growth and wish for nothing more than that they could increase wages and know the solution lies in slashing the taxes they don't pay and increasing work productivity, the latter the workers' own fault for not working hard enough, and introducing flexible industrial relations which guarantee a win-win outcome for both caring employers on the one hand and caring employers on the one hand. And they attack little Billy for threatening calling for a living wage. A living wage for a dying union movement, as Josh and James and Tim would sage which I thought we'd had for more than a century thanks to Justice Higgins, but no. The U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world big supremo of bore or profits, Mike Kane, the workers, declared after he'd recovered from the shock, creating jobs and wealth and boosting productivity will not be achieved through Troublewasi stepping into the 19th century. 
uh, which some workers thought we already had. But Mike is so great a caring business class good boss, he was named Business Person of the Year two years ago for his courageous role in trying to crush the evil construction unions so he knows what he's talking about. Well, the Troubler was he capitalist review summed it up for all of us. Business wants la- business warns Labor wage plan won't lift living standards. Because the big end of town knows that giving workers wages will do nothing to lift the living standards of the big end of town, would step us back to the 19th century. So obviously, as we can't afford a living wage, we'll just have to make do with a dying wage, which must be the opposite, which the great corporates know is good for all of us. Sadly, the socialists are anti-worker, pointed out by government giant thinker Craig Killy the Planet, because the socialists would oppose two exciting new coal-fired power stations that would employ just thousands and thousands and thousands of workers, and the Western Troubler Aussie socialist government wants all new resource projects to be carbon neutral, costing thousands and thousands and thousands of jobs. And Craig made an important concession, given he doesn't believe there is such a thing as climate change, how can we address climate change if we're not allowed to change the climate? Oh, one of the great thinkers, Craig. Which brings us on great thinkers to the revival of one of our favourites, former Hayseed and Sheepshit Party Supremo, Barnacle, who reinforced his commitment to market forces, to the market, to government having no place in business, by demanding the government finance a new coal-fired power station or two in Her Most Gracious Majesty's land. How can we be a major exporter of beautiful coal but not use it ourselves? He scoffed, showing how stupid other people are. Conversely, Barnacle, we exposed how stupid we are. What if we didn't export it and didn't use it? Huh? Barnacle obviously considered the question so irrelevant he didn't think it worth expanding on that answer. Ah, put us in our place. Barnacle did say he had been elected Deputy Big Supremo at the last election, which we know because we all went to the polls thinking, I want to elect Barnacle as Deputy Big Supremo. And the current Hayseed and Sheepshit Supremo, whose name no one can remember, talked about give and take in marriage. And an upset Barnacle said he hoped he wasn't having a go at him and his comment was a faux pas. Is that uh, F-A-U-X-P-A or F-O-E-P-A uh, par? Huh? Haven't we missed him? On Giant Minds, again, headline yesterday morning, Kim plays Trump for a fool over weapons. And I thought, well, it's not much of a challenge. It's right up there in Barnacle Territory. We've been talking today of the great minds who understand the delicate flower that is the economy, bringing us to the foresight of the week award, to the AFL, which laid out 90 grand for these LED-style interchange boards held up on the boundary with the number of the next player the coach wants to run to the interchange bench. (laughs) Hard to believe no one, no one in that billion-dollar bureaucracy twigged that when you hold it up in the sunlight, (laughs) that's right, of course, no one can read it. I'm a technical moron and I could have told them that and saved them 90 grand of useless scrap. Finally, we successfully negotiated Labor Day without the most remote reference to Labor Day. Sorry, Moomba. 
This morning's Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin summed up the fun beautifully. Trees, toadstools and butterflies cruised alongside mad scientists, dragon and a giant llama. Oh, what fun. Uh, but, but what about evil union floats, workers celebrating? There is no place for poetics in Mumba, uh, Labor Day, Mumba. Oh, where's Comrade Heather when we need her? Good afternoon. Good afternoon to Mr Kevin Healy and I must fill you in a little of that little glitch at the beginning. It um, relates to the fact that when Kevin was recording, beginning to record this morning, the workers in the house next door who are demolishing and adding to the house decided that they would get power tools out and the noise you could hear through the phone. So I said to Kevin, why don't you go in and ask them if they'll just put it power tools down for 10 minutes while you record the interview that's what he did and that's what happened and that was the week that was this week and you'll hear more of Kevin without the phone and the demolition noises for City Limits tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock 3CR are selling Kafia Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. So I omitted to say at the beginning of the program that we hope to have Chris back on the program next week. He's unwell this week, but this time next week, hopefully we'll have Chris back in the studio for his great voices. Today, a spotlight on France, where the longest-running protest since 1968, known as the Gilets Jaunes, is now in its 15th week beginning on the 17th of November last year. Who are the people protesting? Why are they protesting? And where could these protests lead? What follows is an interview I recorded last week with journalist and researcher Nick McClellan. And my first question to Nick was, what precipitated these protests back in November? There's a, a mixture of reasons that's seen the rise of this nationwide uh, social movement in France. Firstly, France is a very centralised state since the days of Napoleon. You know, a lot of power has been concentrated in Paris and amongst the French national institutions. The French presidency is enormously powerful, much more so than many other heads of state. Uh, it's also head of the executive, has control of the armed forces. Uh, the president appoints the prime minister and so on. So that there is... Uh, a significant centralisation of power within France and within Paris. The second element, obviously, too, is that France is still living with the consequences, like most of the capitalist world, of the 2007-8 financial crisis. The French uh, economy was hit very hard. Um, there's more significant unemployment in France uh, than in uh, some other European countries. And uh, the burden of that, obviously, has fallen the hardest on working people around the country. 
A third element, too, is the particular nature of French President Emmanuel Macron, the um, political formation he created to win the presidency in 2017. Macron won the presidency at a time that the major political parties, the Socialist Party on the the left, so-called, and uh, the uh, main conservative centre-right party, uh, Le Republicain, both faced political crises. Former President François Hollande of the Socialist Party was on 4% approval rating. I mean, gosh, even Bill Shorten gets 33% support. Um, Macron was on 4%, which shows how deeply discredited the Socialist Party government was. The uh, main contender for the presidency from the right, uh, François Fillon, uh, is a Catholic reactionary, a very conservative politician, sort of think Tony Abbott or Kevin Andrews on steroids, you know. Uh, and so both Socialist Party and the, the mainstream centre-right party did very badly in the election. And Macron presented his uh, newly created formation, uh, La République en Marche, the Republic on the Way, as a sort of centrist, above-politics formation. He used the, the common phrase, you know, we're neither left nor right, but above politics, beyond politics. And, you know, storm through the centre, so-called. But Macron is not a centrist politician. Uh, he's a figure of the French right. He comes out of the banking institutions uh, that are, have been at the heart of the financial crisis in Europe and in France. Uh, he used to work for the Rothschild Banking Group, which is one of France's main banking groups, one that really escaped censure or punishment after the financial crisis. He is a graduate of the ENA, the École Normale d'Administration, which is a state-run graduate training program for senior public servants and officials. Um, so he's very much a man of the mainstream. He was Minister for Finance in the uh, Hollande government, but quit and left because he thought they were too radical. Uh, this is a party that ended up having 4% popular support. So he certainly presents himself as a, a man above politics, but in fact, since coming to power in 2017, has launched uh, a really strong offensive against working-class people. So that combination of three elements, the centralised French state focused on Paris, focused on uh, state institutions, the ongoing economic impacts for ordinary people, the austerity felt after the financial crisis, and Macron's particular political style um, have all combined to see a massive public revolt um, in France that's continued since uh, November. What about the rural areas? Well, it's, it's an interesting phenomenon, Gilets jaunes, and it's sort of, a, in some ways, a label that covers a whole range of, of factors. You know, France is, you know, its cities uh, have an inner city core that go back often centuries, but around the cities you have uh, a, a vast urban periphery bleeding out into the countryside. And, you know, it's a phenomenon that people in Melbourne will understand as gradually, you know, the suburbs have encroached further and further into rural areas and farming areas. The lack of services for this urban periphery and for rural and regional areas um, is striking. And, uh, you know, people often talk of the invisible France, the forgotten France, um, and that's certainly true in the public sphere, in the media sphere. You know, the talking heads on TV are all people from, uh, you know, the, the cities and particularly from France. And yet there are, uh, you know, an absolute silence about the living conditions of people in the banlieue, in the, in the outer suburbs. 
And that's a phenomenon we see and understand in Australia. And so one of the features of the Gilets Jaunes movement was people standing up and saying, hang on, you need to listen to us. You need to listen to our concerns, our priorities, that they're not being addressed in the public sphere, in the media. They're certainly not being addressed by the uh, Macron government. And so in November last year, saw hundreds of thousands of people come out for the initial protests. Numbers have certainly uh, dropped away since that time. But a really strong movement. The one thing that's united quite a complex movement has been the yellow vests, um, uh, gilets jaunes in French. Every French motorist has to have a high-vis vest in their car for safety reasons. And so uh, it was a way that people could identify publicly in a pretty high-vis sort of way uh, where they stood. And so people joined the movement simply by putting the high-vis on their dashboard rather than leaving it in the, in the, in the trunk, in the boot. Uh, they uh, put on the vest and joined public protests. The ones that have captured most media attention, of course, have been uh, particularly uh, large protests or violent protests. And it's no surprise to anyone on the left in Australia that the media will focus on violent incidents and miss the significance of the mass mobilisation that's occurred because you had, as you say, not just in the cities, but particularly in the banlieue, in uh, peripheral areas and in rural and regional areas, significant numbers of people continuing to meet, uh, and this is since November last year, um, to discuss the austerity that they're facing in terms of costs of living, in terms of low wages, in terms of uh, the decline in public services, uh, in terms of a lack of democracy that engages with the issues that concern them. And that's a phenomenon that's pretty common across the capitalist world as, as we speak, where ordinary working people feel that they're getting screwed. You only have to look at the, the news where you know, Matthias Corman and, uh, and Joe Hockey have a mate who will do their travel bookings for them, and he just happens to be the largest Liberal Party donor uh, who's the Liberal Party treasurer. You know, those sorts of uh, um, mateship networks are, are viewed with, with some concern by ordinary people, and uh, that attitude in the French uh, centralised French state is pretty clear. People feel that Paris is making decisions that don't affect their lives. When you talk about the outer suburbs, Nick, what about the migrants who, who live in those often huge blocks of flats? Have they been targeted at all? Look, the Gilets Jaunes movement is, is a particularly French-French movement. It depends on the region as to how migrant communities have gotten involved in the protests. That sense of isolation is certainly true. One of the real problems in French political culture is a notion about French Republican values, French citizenship. There's a definition in the French Constitution, of Article 1 of the French Constitution, created by de Gaulle back in 1958, that says all French citizens are equal. There can be no discrimination on the basis of age, ethnicity, race, religion, and so on. So unlike most European powers, European colonial powers, the French have always had one class of citizenship. You know, the Brits have always had a tradition of two classes of citizenship. You know, so if you live in the Falklands or Gibraltar and so on, you may be British, but you don't have all the rights of British citizenship, British nationality. Whereas in France, if you're French, you're French. If you live in Tahiti, you're French. It's France. And so under French law, for example, there's a ban on collecting statistics uh, that uh, record people's ethnicity in certain areas of public uh, public administration. 
And on the one hand, that that sort of non-racial, non-discriminatory policy seems quite admirable, but at another level, it hides all sorts of overt racist discrimination, and that's particularly been the the case for the large African and uh, Arab Maghreb population that lives in France, people from the former French colonies in uh, North Africa and across uh, West Africa. And so you have this situation where the French Republic presents itself as colorblind, but in fact there's overt racial discrimination against people living in uh, the banlieue, living in the public housing flats that uh, surround peripheral Paris. And that sort of discrimination is rife. It also means that it's very hard for French uh, public servants, for French mayors, for French you know, social services to have positive discrimination, what the Americans call affirmative action. You know, there's a recognition in American law that certain communities, certain migrant communities, certain newly arrived uh, populations are uh, discriminated against and therefore you can have affirmative action policies. But in France, you're French, and so we're all French. We all have equal rights. And that myth of equality is a, a source of social tension within France because a lot of people don't feel that they're equal. A lot of people coming from migrant communities feel that they're discriminated against and uh, the final element in that picture is also a deep racism and, and, and distrust for, from uh, French intellectual culture. You know, um, there's a lot to say, about, a lot to say positive about French intellectual culture. But like the media here, there's a sort of sneering attitude to working class people that um, is, is there. You know, the, there's a, a common term called le boeuf, uh, which is a, a term that Charlie Hebdo um, a French satirical magazine publicised a long time ago. Uh, the birth is the beau frère and uh, the brother-in-law. And, you know, the brother-in-law's uh, sort of redneck racists, you know, hunting, fat, ugly, the relative you don't want to bring to the party. And that sort of sneering towards people, you see it across liberalism at the moment with Hillary Clinton talking about the deplorables. And you have the same sort of attitude with um, with some of the Canberra commentators, you know, in the, in the public service who talk about Tasmanians or about people in North Queensland uh, that completely misses the whole history and complexity of those regions. Yeah, sure, North Queensland uh, has brought us rednecks like um, Pauline Hanson and, and, and so on, but it's also brought us um, Eddie Marbo. It's also brought us uh, Henry Reynolds. You know, you have to look at the whole complex history of regions, and uh, I think that's something missing. You know, this week we've had uh, Bob Catter, proudly um, talking about his membership of the CFMEU, uh, which is not an image that sort of springs to mind the first time you think about Bob Catter, but he's a proud union man. And so I think those sort of complexities about regional culture, and it's true in Australia, and it's certainly true in France, are missed in most media commentary. And it shits people. It really annoys them that, uh, that they're written out of history, that their culture, their values, and so on, are, are ignored. And so we've seen that with people standing up, literally on street corners, um, gathering at roundabouts, uh, gathering in uh, public spaces, and saying, here we are, and we're not going away. Commentators will say that it's not a monolithic, single-minded movement. There's no leadership structure. Yet there would be the far left in it and the far right. Yeah, and indeed when it began, it was perceived as a, as a, as a far right uh, step. The initial trigger that uh, a lot of people started protesting against was uh, around a, a proposal from the Macron administration to increase fuel charges 
green measure to, um, you know, raise funds for uh, climate action. In fact, it wasn't. It was a revenue grab, but uh, it was presented as an environmental statement. And so the first protest came famously. There was a guy called Eric Drouet, who's a, a truck driver, um, and he just said, this is crazy. This will destroy my livelihood. Um, if I have to pay extra diesel taxes, it may be good for people who live in the inner city who don't drive very far, but we drive long distances, we live in the outer areas, there's no public transport. And so it was perceived as an anti-environmental movement at first. There was also elements of the fascist right in France that joined into the early protests, as well as people on the left. And so initially it was derided as a, a sort of um, outgrowth of the National Front which is now called Rassemblement National, the National Rally, the National Gathering. That's the neo-fascist movement uh, led by Marine Le Pen, which is a major political force in France. And so at the initial stages, the first few weeks of the protests, where literally hundreds of thousands of people were protesting, Macron presented himself as a, a smaller liberal, progressive person, standing up for Republican values, French Republican values of secularism, of equality, against the mob, against uh, the Jacquerie, as it's said in, in French, you know, this sort of mindless mob of bogans. And the public reaction to that was, was striking, that two-thirds, according to opinion polls, of French people actually supported the Gilets Jaunes, even if they weren't out on the streets. And that's, I think, because they recognised that the Macron government had let, you know, had belied its claim of being above politics and had launched a series of assaults on union rights, on living standards, and had benefited the rich. Macron, when he came in in 2017, pledged that he'd work for all French people, as politicians often do, but he instantly brought in a series of policies that clearly benefited the wealthy. Firstly, he removed um, a number of taxes on the most ultra-wealthy that had been brought in by previous administrations, a particular tax called the ISF, which taxed the you know, millionaires and billionaires were given quite a serious tax hit, and he removed that. And some estimates were that uh, uh, the richest 1% of French uh, billionaires were going to get an extra 70% in wealth over the, the year, thanks to the tax concessions um, and the removal of tax hits that uh, Le Macron brought in. Secondly, he launched a massive assault against uh, the railway unions. The French uh, SCNF is the national railway system, um, it's a strongly unionized, uh, in spite of low union presence in France. It's been a bastion of, uh, um, you know, good conditions around uh, workplace health and safety, uh, good conditions for railway workers and so on. And it's been a long dream of the right to be able to attack uh, those working conditions. And Macron successfully launched, uh, despite a number of strikes, an assault on the uh, SNCF uh, last year. Um, so the sort of uh, increased petrol taxes was seen as part of a pattern where he was, you know, shifting benefits, obviously, in terms of the rich rather than the poor. And people who'd fought uh, in the union movement were taken aback a bit because they weren't sure what was happening with a movement that was being branded as right-wing but was, in fact, fighting on the same side against austerity, against the sort of anti-working-class policies that the government was promoting. And over time major institutions, major left-wing movements, started getting more and more involved in the Gilets Jaunes. So although there's still a strong right-wing presence in the, the, the movement, and you see some fascist groupings hoping to, 
to, uh, to, to use the movement. At the same time, you've seen these popular discussions bringing together people across the political spectrum, but it's really created an opening for the left, an opening for debate, for discussion about the way forward. And that's something that's often missing in, in other countries, uh, certainly in Australia. You're listening to Tuesday Home Time on Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR. My name's Jan Bartlett and I'm speaking with journalist and researcher Nick McClellan about the Gilets Jaunes, the Yellow Vest movement in France. What role have women played in it? A very high profile and, and prominent role. It's been uh, uh, a really striking feature of the Gilets Jaunes that um, a lot of people at local level have been uh, leading the, the movement, leading the gatherings, have been women. You know, some of the high-profile people who've spoken out uh, in the early days were women, women who put out a, a petition uh, complaining against the um, uh, sort of change.org petition, complaining against the fuel rises, uh, got more than a million signatures. Um, and so, you know, it was a fairly high-profile candidate, a small business owner uh, who was involved in the early days. You know, the images that you see in the media have been of the street fighting, which has been more blokes, not completely, but many more. But um, in a lot of the popular assemblies, a lot of the popular meetings, a lot of the community organising that's been going on uh, right across France, uh, women have played a pretty crucial role in holding it together and indeed broadening the discussion about issues like the feminisation of poverty, about equal pay for women, about the way that particular industries where women uh, um, have... High levels of employment are discriminated against in terms of pay and conditions. You know, the hospitality industry, um, tourism, and things like that, where women have got a lot, you know, high opportunity for employment, are often, you know, the worst paid. Um, and we see this in Australia with the rip-off of young people working in uh, in hospitality and cafes, in restaurants, and so on. Same in France, uh, where uh, so-called precarious work is a major feature of the French economy. And you've seen women talking about how it affects them equally but differently to uh, their, their male counterparts. Is there any significance in the fact that these have been only Saturday protests? Well, in fact, they're not just Saturday protests. The, the, the protests that are public to the media have been held every Saturday, and I think we're up to about Act 13. They started off with Act 1, 2, 3, and we're still going at Act 13. Um, but uh, in some rural areas and regional areas, you've had community-wide activities going on right throughout the week. What's been created over a few months has been quite strong networks in some regions of people, and increasingly now involving trade unions, involving a range of progressive NGOs, community organisers, some anti-racism groups and so on, have seen this as an opportunity to join in the discussion of the best way forward. You know, the danger of have, leaving it to the national front uh, Rassemblement National to uh, to guide the movement and say you know what are the solutions is a great danger and there's elections coming up in May for the uh, European Parliament uh, there's a danger that a lot of energy will go into um, providing them the European elections as the solution to the problems and I think what's been seen is that there's a lot of community networking community organizing going um, in suburban areas in rural areas that happens under the radar and certainly doesn't just happen on Saturday. People gather, people protest on Saturday, but um, from what I've been able to read, and I haven't been to France uh, over the last period, there's a lot of community organising going on, and that's under the radar, but in fact that's probably more significant and more lasting 
because as happens in all periods of struggle, all periods of people coming together to talk about the future, to talk about what they want, it builds bonds of comradeship that are going to survive the inevitable downturn of the movement. Uh, you know, Macron is working very hard to co-opt and diffuse the movement. The other element, though, has been quite carrot and stick in this, that there's been massive repression by the police and uh, quite significant violence by the police against the protests. That's pretty normal in France, though, isn't it? Yeah, there's a tradition of street fighting in France that I think a lot of the left in Australia has fallen in love with, um, you know, going back to the days of the May 68 barricades and indeed going back to 1789 when they chopped the king's head off. Um, you know, France has a tradition of getting out in the streets and the French state has used things like the CRS, the Republican Security Corps, which is a sort of paramilitary police to basically beat the shit out of people. And they've certainly been doing that. Um, the current interior minister is a guy called Christophe Castanard. And from the beginning of the protests, he launched the police against the protests with a certain viciousness that's been surprising to many commentators. It's worked to a certain extent in that it's uh, reduced the number of people who've been willing to go to some of the main public protests and rallies because uh, the police response has been over the top. And that's been, you know, there are a number of people who've been killed. There are thousands of injuries, and these are not just, you know, the odd bruise. It's people whose hands have been blown off, who've lost eyes, who've been seriously damaged, where, and this has been well documented by a number of uh, independent human rights organisations, you know, police have fired tear gas canisters directly at crowds at their heads. Police have have deliberately uh, used tactics that have led to uh, serious injuries and so on. And, uh, you know, there's an element of the, the Gilets Jaunes movement that really enjoys street fighting with the cops and has symbolically used violence, um, you know, quite tactically. There's been uh, particularly protests in France, uh, sorry, in Paris, uh, where uh, protesters have gone not to the traditional sites of left-wing protest, like the Place de la Nation, Place de la République, which are traditional meeting grounds for the left. It's a bit like the State Library in Melbourne, where everyone knows you gather for a rally at the State Library, then march through town. Um, there are traditional meeting places in Paris as well. But protests in the Gilets Jaunes have gone straight to the Champs-Élysées, the famous tourist area in the central Paris. They've gone to the Arc of the Triomphe and, uh, and battled police around the Arc of the Triomphe. It's like... You know, people from Maui arriving in Melbourne and fighting the police around the MCG. It's sort of a, it's, it's symbolically such an assault on the Republic. Macron in the early days offered concessions. Uh, in December last year, he offered, some announced $10 billion worth of concessions in terms of increases in minimum wage, in terms of re- reducing the, uh, the proposed rise in fuel taxes and so on. And so the Macron administration has, has tried on one hand to defuse the movement but has maintained a consistent and, and significantly violent tactic of just crushing public protests whenever they get too near places of importance. Is there a green movement within this movement? Not so much, although it's coming. In the early days, as I say, the, you know, this was a movement of people whose first priority was cost of living, uh, was about uh, the enormous burden on you know, people's wages um, from... Uh, more than a decade of austerity after the global economic crisis. And, you know, it was focused on working-class people, particularly, and small businesses and so on, who were feeling the burden of that austerity. In that sense, the green movement and the environmental groups were a bit non 
using taxation, of using government intervention to try and rein in fossil fuel use, to try and rein in. And it's a debate we're having in Australia about Adani, which is characterised by the media tries to present it as jobs versus environment. I think the challenge has been for the French movement, and I think it's the challenge for the Australian environment movement as well. How can you talk about jobs and environment? How can you uh, address the concerns of working people in areas that are going to be transformed, whether by deindustrialisation, industries moving offshore, or whether by the inevitable changes that we're going to have to make to address climate change? You know, we face this challenge in Australia, and you only have to look at the valley, in the Latrobe Valley, where, you know, the closure of Hazelwood, the inevitable impact on the, the coal industry. How do you clean up after the coal industry? And we've had the fires down uh, in, uh, in the valley. And you've got, you know, the group in the valley called Voices of the Valley, which is symbolic people who are feeling the effect of this transition you know, the privatisation of the State Electricity Commission and how that affected people's working lives, the uh, inevitable environmental impact of being an out-of-sight, out-of-mind toxic area, and the fact that climate change is fundamentally transforming our society and our economy and that some areas are going to have to change. And we've got mining areas in, like Newcastle, you know, that are ports reliant on coal exports. We've got uh, areas like the Valley... The battle over the Galilee Basin is part of this. Townsville, where Clive Palmer overnight shut down uh, a major uh, nickel smelter and uh, created you know, massive unemployment, leaving it for the federal government to pick up the costs for workers. Um, all of these issues, we're in a, a transition. And the environmental movement in Australia and in, certainly in France has sometimes found it difficult to talk about that just transition that addresses both jobs and environment addresses ways in which we might transform the economy to still create opportunities for people for employment, for living their lives in a sustainable way. And, you know, it's often in remote and rural areas, uh, in the periphery of society, where these changes are happening fastest and have the most impact because there aren't the alternatives that you might find if you're living in in, uh, major urban centres. So I think, you know, I don't want to draw direct analogies between Australia and France because they're very different societies and the whole French system is very different to Australia. But I think we're seeing around the world, whether it's Brexit or Trump or or, or France or or whatever, that the the failure of the neoliberal nostrums are clear. The global economic crisis that, you know, began in the late 1990s with economic crisis in Argentina, in Russia, in Indonesia, uh, you know, the fall of the Sahara dictatorship in, the, in 1998, that confluence of things happening at that time, two decades later, a decade later, occurred in the central part of the capitalist economy, in the United States, in Europe, you know, the collapse of the banks a decade after the original 1998 Asian economic crisis happened in the heartland of capitalism in, in New York and in Paris and in Berlin, and, you know, the outcomes are pretty clear, the Arab Spring, you know, and and I think the political result, however, is complex, and I think that's, you know, the Gilets Jaunes movement reflects that complexity. You know, yes, there are right-wing elements in it, yes, the French National Front, the Rassemblement National, rebranded, wants to seize leadership of the movement, recognising that people are pissed off with politics as normal, and I think that's the challenge 
for us in Australia as well. People are certainly pissed off with politics as normal, but, you know, what are the alternatives? And in France, uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon's uh, La France Insoumise, uh, France Unbowed, is presenting itself as a left-wing alternative for people to vote for beyond the classic social democratic policies of the Socialist Party. We don't have the same momentum on the left in Australia as, as happens in France, where uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon gained significant votes uh, the presidential election as a strong party base. Uh, it's going to be an interesting time ahead. Just finally, Nick, in the short term, where does this leave the Republic on the way? Well, La Republic en marche is, uh, you know, uh, embedded around Macron and will fall with Macron. Macron's opinion polls have slowly climbed in uh, uh, the last few weeks, um, having dipped significantly because of this. As I said, uh, you know, November, December last year, two-thirds of French people, according to the polls, were supportive of the demands of the Gilets Jaunes movement, even though they weren't necessarily out on the streets. The media coverage of violence and allegations of anti-Semitism, of uh, right-wing propaganda, have certainly lost some support to the, the Gilets Jaunes movement. At the same time, though, I, I think from my understanding, the movement has broadened. Macron's therefore in a, in a difficult situation He's launched a, what's called a grand national dialogue, his way of addressing the fact that the centralised French state hasn't talked with, engaged with ordinary citizens. He's going around talking to mayors and uh, public meetings, uh, uh, certainly getting members of his government to do so, if not himself personally, in an attempt to co-opt the spirit of the movement, which is about engaging in dialogue about community concerns. I'm not persuaded that that's going to work. The one deadline that's coming up, of course, is the um, May European elections. It's uh, uh, significant that uh, this m- people are trying to channel this movement into the elections, uh, which really goes against what the movement's been arguing, that it's about local people controlling local affairs. And Macron is presenting himself as the smaller liberal pro-European candidate, facing up to a range of anti-European union forces, everything from... Theresa May's conservatives and the Brexit forces around UKIP, the UK Independence Party, to the right-wing government in Italy, to the neo-fascists who are getting force in places like Hungary. Macron presents himself as liberalism's candidate uh, in Europe. Um, But let's not forget that in 2005, the the people of France uh, rejected the original Maastricht Treaty. Uh, You know, going back to 92, there's a lot of resistance to the European project in France. And so I think this debate's not going to go away because the question is about how do you solve the crisis of austerity is a significant one. And thanks once again to journalist and researcher Nick McClellan and for his next monthly spot on Tuesday Home Time, he'll be returning to Issues in the Pacific. That's Nick McClellan. The annual Flavors Festival on this March celebrates culture from around the globe with cooking demonstrations by celebrity sweet creator Anna Polivu and Greg Hampton from Charcoal Lane showcasing native ingredients and flavors. It's free and family friendly with music by Black Jesus Experience, Indigenous hip hop projects and many more. Flavors Festival, Saturday, March 16 from 3pm at Gravel Street, Pran. Proudly presented by the City of Stonington. A 3CR supporter.
Brunswick Music Festival, back for two weeks this March, featuring international acts, Flahio, Jay Mascus and Snail Mail, plus an epic local contingent including Jazz Party, The Necks, A Swayze and the Ghosts, The Murlocs, Tando, Jade Imagine, Sophie Grophy, Genesis Owusu, Beck Sandridge, Hexdet, and so much more. For the full program and tickets, head to brunswickmusicfestival.com.au. Brunswick Music Festival is a 3CR supporter. And coming up next is um, a talk by Joan Coxedge, a member of the Labor government, Labor opposition for many years in the Victorian Parliament and now concentrates on being an activist, pure and simple. We're barely into 2019 and the global situation is unravelling at a terrifying rate. I'm horrified at the level of inhumanity we've reached and ask how the hell we've allowed it to happen. But a few words about our local band of shyster MPs that keeps pinging along, all of them as corrupt as buggery. It's hard to pick which is the most obnoxious, Potato Head Dutton or his crooked soulmate Matthias Corman, whose guttural tones bring back memories of the Third Reich. Or maybe the king of hypocrites, ambassador to the US, Joe Hockey, who had the gall to lecture us about leaners while his hands were in the till. And let's not forget the shrill, union-bashing Michaela Cash or the Institute of Public Affairs Supremo Tim Wilson or that private school Pratt Christopher Pine, who's thankfully retiring, or Treasurer Josh Frydenberg, who sounds like a dill because he is a dill, and Morrison leading a conga line of coal-loving, anti-environmental flat-earthers. Ministerial responsibility has left the building, and these desperados will dog-whistle, cat-whistle or kangaroo-whistle if need be to deflect attention from their crimes and stupidity. In contrast, some decent and honourable people are being attacked and derided, like British Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn, who has a long history of anti-war activism but is now accused of anti-Semitism by two major sources, the Daily Mail and the BBC, as part of a witch hunt at Westminster, which is increasingly being used to delegitimise critics of the Israeli government and its brutal policies against Palestinians in the West Bank, Gaza and East Jerusalem. The problem took on new life when the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance drew the false assumption that Zionism is completely identical with Jewishness and that a seamless equation can therefore be drawn between the state of Israel and the Jewish people. A false equation because many Jews are not Zionists. And then there's Chelsea Manning who supplied WikiLeaks with impeccable information about the crimes of governments and has now been condemned to an indefinite period in jail after defying the grand jury. And Julian Assange, who published the material and has been holed up in the Ecuadorian embassy in London for many years. His resilience and courage are astonishing, but sadly at the expense of his physical well-being. The UN says he has the right to free passage and freedom, but this is denied. He has the right to medical treatment without fear of arrest, but this is denied. He has the right to compensation, but this is also denied. Julian's crime has been to make sense of dark times and dark crimes. 
WikiLeaks has an impeccable record of accuracy and authenticity, which no newspaper, no TV channel, no radio station, no BBC, no Washington Post nor Guardian can equal. But of course, my main focus is on the world's most powerful, most evil man, Donald Trump, who is preparing for a hot war with Venezuela, the latest chapter in the long and bloody history of U.S. imperialism in Latin America. Not since the U.S. proclaimed its imperial supremacy over Latin America almost 200 years ago has the White House so openly promoted its intention to recolonize the region in classic Monroe Doctrine policy. This malevolent, foul-mouthed, narcissistic nutter had the audacity to publicly threaten to assassinate the Venezuelan military if they continued to defend their government and their president. What awful stage we got to in world affairs that this former real estate con man can openly state an intention to kill the legitimate leader of a sovereign nation while the rest of the world, the so-called civilised West, looks on and says nothing, and that includes Australia. Is that why John Bolton popped into Canberra last week to make sure we stayed in line? An amoral bully and sociopath who avoided military service in Vietnam and loves war as long as he's not in it. Bolton helped write the script for the 2003 invasion of Iraq and last week publicly threatened Maduro with death, jail and torture if he refused to resign. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo is another pathological crazy who works in the White House. Like Former Defence Secretary Mad Dog Mattis, who recently stated, it's hard to believe, but he recently stated at the San Diego Forum, it's a lot of fun to fight. It's a hell of a hoot. It's fun to shoot some people. I like brawling. And there's the unhinged Vice President Mike Pence to round off the Trump freak show, but not quite. Dirty war expert Elliot Abrams has been appointed U.S. Special Envoy to Venezuela, even though he was linked to the 2002 coup attempt there. Abrams was also convicted of lying to Congress about the Iran-Contra fiasco and supported General Rios Montt, the Guatemalan dictator who directed the torture and mass murder of its indigenous people in the 1980s and was later convicted of genocide. We've never had an American government as full of dangerous crackpots as this one. Some facts might help. As John Pilger writes, in eight years, Hugo Chavez won eight elections and referendums, a world record, and was electorally the most popular head of state in the Western Hemisphere. Every major Chavista reform was voted on, including for a new constitution that was supported by 71% for each of the 396 articles. These enshrined previously unheard of freedoms, such as Article 123, which for the first time recognised the human rights of mixed race and black people, of whom Chavez was one. Of the 92 elections we've monitored, said former President Jimmy Carter, I would say the election process in Venezuela is the best in the world, whereas the US electoral system, with its emphasis on campaign money, is one of the worst. In the 2018 election, which most of the opposition boycotted, out of the 9,000,000 
389,056 who voted, Maduro won with 6,248,864 votes, all 67.84%. But Trump was having none of it. He put forward Juan Guiado as interim president, who no one had voted for and few had heard of, except for those within the National Endowment for Democracy. If this CIA stooge and his cohorts win power, this will be the 68th overthrow of the sovereign government by the United States. Since the death of Chavez in 2013, Maduro's had to cope with a slide in the price of oil that caused hyperinflation that caused internal strife, exacerbated by the Bank of England's refusal to return Venezuela's gold reserves. But oil is not the only issue in Venezuela, which isn't to say that oil companies wouldn't be interested in looting this natural resource. But that's only part of the story. The real story is the politics behind control of Venezuelan oil that is part of a broader international conflict with Russia after Maduro, desperate to get additional financing amid crippling sanctions with a loss of more than $6 billion in revenue, offered Russian mining companies access to gold mining operations. There are other mineral prizes to be had, nickel, diamonds, iron ore, aluminium, bauxite and natural gas, all of significant interest to both Russia and China. In March 2018, when Bolton announced the Troika of Tyranny, Cuba, Venezuela and Nicaragua, he was saying that the US cannot successfully defeat Russia in Eastern Europe or China in Southeast Asia without eliminating their presence in what it calls America's backyard. With a consolidated right-wing front already in place under Colombia's Duque, Argentina's Macri and Bolsonaro in Brazil, Washington sees Venezuela as the last major domino to fall in Latin America, although millions of working-class people who live there might have other ideas and will not go down without a hell of a fight. But the vultures of empire are circling with a massive build-up of the most sophisticated weaponry off the Florida coast, waiting for the opportunity to strike a death blow to socialism and petro-capitalist Russia. And if they can shove it up China in the process, all the better. This could snowball into one of the largest military operations since the disastrous 2003 invasion of Iraq and could kill hundreds of thousands of people and threaten the peace and stability of the entire world. And while our media and political establishments procrastinate, our precious planet is burning and humanity is teetering near the environmental cliff. In 2008, NASA scientists reported that we would see irreversible ice sheet and species loss if the planet's average temperature rose above one degree Celsius. And here we are, 11 years later, well past the one degree red line, the highest level of CO2 saturation in 800,000 years. Our failure to dramatically slash it will set off catastrophic conditions for hundreds of millions of people, leading to a planet that will be mostly unlivable. And here's the thing. Many serious climate scientists find that current findings seriously underestimate the timeline regarding tipping points when we've gone beyond the point 
of no return. In a remotely intelligent society would reckon, wouldn't you, that our survival on planet Earth would be seen as the most important issue of our time. Each year of inaction pushes us deeper into an extraordinarily dangerous future, but you wouldn't know it from our idiotic politicians in our mainstream media. The term climate change simply doesn't cut it today. Climate catastrophe is what we are facing, and we're all involved and must do whatever we can to stop the lunacy of denial and inaction. And so three cheers for our young people who are going on strike next Friday to highlight their support for our precious and unique Mother Earth and all who live in it. I'm broadcasting this from a studio at 3CR on Monday, March the 11th, which used to be called Labor Day, to celebrate the eight-hour day for workers brought about by the labor movement in the 1850s, a campaign based on the ideal of an eight-hour working day with eight hours work, eight hours rest and eight hours recreation. It all came to a head in 1856 when stonemason James Stevens led tradesmen from a construction site at Melbourne University on a march culminating at Parliament House, which was also a construction site. The parliamentarians agreed to their demands, reducing the working day from 10 to 8 hours without a loss of pay, a victory that became famous the world over and was celebrated here for almost 100 years, the largest public celebrations in the state. The last march was held in 1951, replaced by the Moomba Parade, in 1955. But when you see the current working conditions, which are horrendous, where workers haven't had a pay rise in five years and where corporate profits have gone through the roof, it's time for workers to rise up again, to fight and to struggle for a fairer, more just society. So good afternoon, good luck and a happy Labor Day. And that was activist and writer Joan Cox Edgeman. We hope most people had a a happy Labor Day yesterday. It's coming up to five minutes past five and you are listening to Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR. This is Tuesday Home Time and coming up to come, we've got um, talk on what's happening in Venezuela, the situation in Syria and also talk about the Quaker movements, humanitarian and anti-war activities going back centuries and also into the 21st first century with work in North Korea. Hi, I'm Rod Quantock and you're listening to Fill in the Dots, you know who you're listening to. Why do I have to tell you who you're listening to? You know who you're listening to. You're listening to, yes, Fill in the Dots. 3CR Community Radio, you got it right, you've won a giraffe. Uh, we're at 8.55am, we're on digital radio and streaming at 3cr.org.au. 3CR has been making trouble since 1976 and occasionally I've been part of the trouble that's been made. It's a vital part of our uh, media landscape and I'd encourage you to get a hacksaw, an oxyacetylene torch and go up to the Dandenongs and, and bring down all those broadcast towers that aren't 3CR's towers and let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by Neil Mitchell. Are you passionate about films, interested in cultural diversity 
or wanting to get exposure for your own film. The Indonesian Film Festival is just around the corner with our main events running from March the 23rd to April the 10th. There'll be free film screenings, panel discussions and for filmmakers there's the short film competition. This year's theme is The Unknown and film submissions close on the 3rd of March. What are you waiting for? Go and check it out. The Indonesian Film Festival, iffaustralia.com, a 3CR supporter. We've been striking on and off since the 1st of November. All over the world, school-aged kids are on strike to demand action on climate change. In Melbourne, the school strike is running from 12 till 2pm on Friday the 15th of March at the Treasury Building on Spring Street in the city. At 3CR, we believe that action on climate change is urgently required. There will be no community radio on a dead planet. So today, we come together with our friends at Joy 94.9, SIN and Triple R in support of our youth and their message to our leaders to take urgent action on climate change. For more information, go to studentstrikeforclimate.com. Yesterday I spoke with activist and academic Dr Tim Anderson and the main topic for discussion was Venezuela. I pointed out that a great deal has been happening since the beginning of the year and asked him where he'd like to begin. I think the 23rd of January, which is a significant day in Venezuelan history, and there were rallies by the opposition and by the government on that day, and that's when the operation began directed by Washington to appoint a new president of Venezuela from outside the country. It's just an amazing concept, isn't it? You can't imagine it happening anywhere else. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, the arrogance of uh, Washington never sort of ceases to amaze us, does it? They've always considered... There's always been this idea of exceptionalism, which both the liberals and the realists, you might say, or the Republicans and the Democrats, uh, have always had this idea that the normal rules of international law don't apply to the US and I suppose that's what we're seeing. And this man didn't just come out of the woodwork, he's been trained and mentored in the US for quite a while? Yeah, that's true. He began in the street level opposition to the Chavez government, involved in violence, guarimbas they call them, they're like roadblocks where they put up wires and they've killed a number of people in the wealthy suburbs typically of Caracas. So he apparently did go to the U.S. for training, and uh, he's still in his mid-30s, I think. He's a member of the National Assembly. But he was groomed, you might say, to be a little puppet for Washington in Caracas. Talk about the so-called aid on the border with Colombia. People are calling it a Trojan horse. Others are saying it's a, it's a tent of a coup. Where do you see it? Well, it was just a stunt to try and move the coup along, but it hasn't worked very well. The aim was to say that here the U.S., although it's blockading Venezuela economically and is stealing or freezing billions and billions of dollars in Venezuelan oil revenue, but here's a couple of million dollars of things in a few trucks on the Colombian border, and this is going to symbolically represent the breaking of the... Here's a new regime that is starving its own people and so on, and they're refusing to allow aid in. But 
Then there was a concert organised by Richard Branson. Well, the concert was a bit of a flop. They announced it was massive and it wasn't nearly that big. None of the trucks got in. Um, they were burned by the followers of this uh, guy Guaido on the Colombian side of things. They never made it into Venezuela, but they tried to blame the Venezuelan troops anyway. Three soldiers defected from the army, stole a couple of vehicles and injured some people in driving them across the border. But all in all, it was a big flop. There was no defections from the army. The plan to blame the government for burning one of the trucks, uh, or a couple of the trucks, failed. And uh, Guaido really wasn't able to make much, uh, get much momentum. I think that's why the Venezuelan government allowed him to come back into the country after he'd done a bit of a tour of, of South America without arresting him, because, of course, he has breached a number of serious laws. Just focus a moment on the, the so-called three to four million people who have left Venezuela and also the focus of the corporate media on the plight of the indigenous peoples in the west of Venezuela. I'm not sure of the numbers of the people. that There are a lot that have left Venezuela. I was in Ecuador about three, four months ago and there are a number of Venezuelan immigrants there. And the main reason for the emigration from Venezuela has been the hyperinflation and the, the fact that the, current, the government hasn't been able to stabilise the currency. Of course, the currency's been under attack, the economy's been under attack. There's been massive black markets. For example, fuel that was sold very cheaply in Venezuela is smuggled out to Colombia and so on. So the fact that they haven't been able to get control on the, the currency and prices has created a lot of chaos. There's still, it's not the case that people are starving. There's still a lot of very strong social programs with free and subsidised food and so on. And there are goods inside the country, but the price currency issue has not been able to come under control, basically. So that's a lot to do with the emigration. Mind you, while we're talking about emigration, the biggest number of emigrants in the whole of South America is from Colombia. And there are several million in, in Venezuela, too. Um, this is a result of more than 50 years of war in Colombia. I'd imagine on that, out of that three to four million, a lot of those or many of those would be from Colombia? Maybe. It could be that they've got family, people have got families on both sides of the border. It's a very big border and there's a lot of business going on across it, including black market business. And the so-called plight of the indigenous peoples? One thing to remember about indigenous people is that the states that surround Venezuela, Brazil, uh, the current president of Brazil, has specifically said that he wants nothing to do with Indigenous people. If you like Indigenous people, go to Bolivia. That was his statement. Um, in Colombia, it hasn't been much better. Chavez, the Chavez government in Venezuela, was the only government in Venezuelan history which began to recognise Indigenous people and to recognise their ancestral lands and to create specific programs in support of Indigenous people. So the Chavez government and the Maduro government have been the only ones in the region that have really given attention to Indigenous people. So, of course, from the US side of things, there's always been these psychological operations to try and undermine the leftist governments in Bolivia, in Ecuador, and also in, in Venezuela, using some small groups of Indigenous people. But really, in Venezuela, the Chavez-Maduro government has been the, the strongest by far, and that's why, of course, in Venezuela... Indigenous people overwhelmingly vote for Chavez Maduro 
and the same in Ecuador, Indigenous people, despite the, the psychological operations, they all, not all of them, vast majority voted for Rafael Correa when he was president in Ecuador. The power blackout last week, where do you believe the blame lies for that? Well, the government's saying it was sabotage. I'm not sure what Washington's saying. It's not very clear, basically. They're trying to say everything that goes on in the country, including the damage that they inflict, is a result of socialism. That's, that seems to be the Trump government line at the moment. Of course, um, that's not the case. Um, it seems that there was sabotage and a cyber attack because the electricity system in Venezuela is actually quite highly developed, but it also relies on computerised, uh, automatic computerised, compensation for attacks and the Venezuelan government has drawn attention to the fact that one of the senators from Florida, uh, Marco Rubio, was saying within just a few minutes of the blackout that not only was there a blackout but the backup system was, wasn't working either. That was before people knew that the backup system, which was this computerised compensation system which compensates for greater or lesser demand, was indeed attacked, was the subject of a cyber attack. So that's the information so far. How serious a blackout was it, or is it still affecting people? It was a very serious blackout. It was um, up to 70% of the country was blacked out. This is because the, the electricity system was integrated, and um, they've had some of the same fears in the US that the greater you integrate your systems, the greater the chance of a catastrophic collapse. Well, most of it is back up now. Most of the... But it did take quite a number of hours or days, some days, in fact, to get it back up. And then two days later, the marches, and the 9th of March is a special day for the people of Venezuela? Well, I'm not sure exactly what's been organised um, in, the, in the country. Of course, the, one, the pro-government marches, typically, they have, like with Syria, same thing, and the Western media hasn't paid any attention to those things. So if anything is organised by the opposition, um, it's going to be magnified in the US media, for example. Looking to the near future, what do you think the next trick will be? Well, I think that the coup attempt has failed. That's what they're saying in Venezuela. That's what they're saying across Latin America, those that are sympathetic to the, the left um, government network in, in, in Venezuela. Indeed, there's a great deal of dissatisfaction with, in Washington with Guaido because Guaido hasn't really been able to get any great momentum within the country. There's still reporting of this outside the country as though, you know, there's an alternative government. Remember the, what they said about the, the legitimate government of Syria outside Syria, all those uh, paraded people they appointed as a legi legitimate government of Syria, and uh, Britain and France and the US, the same, the same people were saying these were the real representatives of Syria, and where are they now? Guaido is in the same sort of category. He, he hasn't attracted much attention inside the country. They're still talking about him outside the country. But as I said, because he doesn't really control anything, because he hasn't been able to get any significant defections from the army or the major institutions, it's really a, a Western bubble phenomenon at the moment. So I think that the Venezuelans are more relaxed about it. Of course, he has broken laws. He's taking money to overthrow the system, the constitutional system of the of the state. So it's it's possible that he's going to face some legal consequences down the track. But I think in Venezuela they're fairly relaxed about it now. The priority is and and has has been for some time to try and stabilise the currency and the prices, and they've taken some measures which were overshadowed by all the news about 
the outside appointed government. But what about the shortages? How can that be addressed? So the shortages are not the biggest problem. The shortages are caused by hoarding because a lot of big private corporations are still controlling big sections of the food system, for example. But there aren't so much chronic shortages as prices that aren't able to be controlled. So in other words, there are goods on on the shelves there. You've seen a number of reporters have gone in and uh, like the Grey Zone, uh, Max Blumenthal, people like that have been showing the supermarkets there. The problem has been the prices. And so therefore, the compensation has been for a long time and you've got something called Mission Mercal there since 2003, what's that, um, 15 years of cheap and subsidised food being distributed. That's been the compensation, really. If people can't afford supermarket food, it's there, rich food, you know, meat and so on. It's actually there. And Venezuela actually has money, but the problem has been the currency and the prices. Can you talk about Syria for a few minutes, Tim? We're seeing these, all these photos of people leaving the area of Syria, which has been under control of ISIS, and then we have the reports that it was America and their friends that, in there that, that routed ISIS. How do you see it? Yeah, the, um, this is part of the general propaganda war against Syria. The war on ISIS by the US was nothing of the sort, and people in the region know it very well, that there's, there were regular reports since late 2014, what's that, um, four years, more than four years, that the US was covertly assisting ISIS all through that time. And the role of Iran was played down. I noticed that there is a report by the US weapons inspector, Scott Ritter, which is pointing out they've ignored the fact that Iran's assistance for Hashid al-Shabi, the popular mobilization forces in Iraq, was critical to destroying ISIS or Daesh in, in Iraq. The role of the Syrian army backed by the Russians was critical in Syria. So the US has falsely claimed credit for this um, from the Obama regime through to the Trump regime. The problem has been in recent times that the US has parked itself with its proxy groups on the southern border, Al-Tanas, near the corner of Jordan, Iraq and Syria, and on the eastern side with Iraq, and particularly the bottom of the Euphrates there, Abu Kamal, and also with um, these Kurdish or mixed Kurdish groups, the SDF in the northeast of Syria, to try and block, specifically to try and block the relations between Iraq and Syria or the, the transport corridor. There's a very great fear that the Israelis and, the, and Washington are talking about. They call it the Iran land bridge. They're desperately in fear that there's going to be a transport corridor between Iran, Iraq, Syria and Lebanon from Tehran to Beirut, which of course would be, in any other country, would be a brilliant thing. It would be spoken of as a brilliant thing because it opens up trade, it opens up communication, it opens up so many possibilities for the region. But really it's been 40 years that the US and its allies and its tools in the region like Israel and the Saudis have been precisely trying to crush this. They don't want good neighborly relations between Iran, Iraq, Syria and Lebanon. They've been trying to sabotage it for a long time. And just now, this week, the President Rouhani of Iran is visiting Baghdad, is visiting Iran, uh, Iraq. Sorry. And that's a very good sign. That That's the future of the region, really. But uh, Israel and the U.S. have been trying to do everything to try and prevent this happening. Good neighbourly, simple, good neighbourly relationship between those countries of the region. 
What are you hearing from your friends in Syria about what life is like in the, the major cities at the moment? Life in, in um, Damascus is uh, very normal. Since early last year when they got rid of the, the armed groups from the East Ghouta region, there's no more mortaring of, of Damascus. Most of Syria is secure. It's just that the U.S. has parked itself in these areas, one area in the south and the east and northeast, specifically to block what they consider to be Iranian influence linking up those countries. And in doing so, they've got keeping the armed groups alive. They're keeping ISIS alive and the SDS alive and uh, the SDF and whatever else they call their proxy groups, uh, for example, the groups that they've got around Al-Tanaf. They've also got civilians um, effectively held hostage there. You may have heard of there's an area near Al-Tanaf, a refugee camp, which has held up to 40,000 people, and they won't allow the people to leave, or they've been leaving in very small trickles, basically. The Russians and the Syrians have sent buses over to try and take them out to relocate them, and people there have been dying in this um, this refugee camp area near the the U.S. base in, in Al-Tanaf, which they're defending militarily. So um, in Idlib, the problem in Idlib in the northwest has been that there is a large, still a large group of Al-Qaeda-aligned um, groups, and the, the dominance of uh, HTS or al-Nusra al-Qaeda has increased in the time that they've been there. You know there's been this sort of a ceasefire uh, organised between Russia and Turkey to prevent a escalation of the conflict there, but that's being uh, rolled back at the moment. Basically, there's um, the Russians and the Syrians are impatient to clean that area out. They're going to do it in the, in the near future, I believe. There's still a lot of military operations coming out of the terrorist area into North Hama, for example. There, they've been attacking civilians and the Syrian army there, and it means that. In northwest Syria, in the western part of Aleppo, in the eastern part of Latakia, in northern Hama, that there are still these attacks. And Syrian soldiers, if you look at the Syrian news, Syrian soldiers are dying almost every day still in uh, holding ground there. So I think it's not a tolerable situation for the Syrians. And the Russians have agreed now that Turkey has had its chance to... Turkey hasn't complied, or the, the Turkish president, Erdogan, hasn't complied with any of the things that he said he would do last year. Uh, it was a, a, a time, uh, what do you say, a stalling effort to give Erdogan a chance to prove his good credentials. He hasn't done that. And I think we're going to see sometime early this year a move by Syria, the Syrian alliance, backed by Iran, backed by Russia, to, to clean out Idlib. It just seems that there's so many players who believe they've got a stake in this area. If, if people respected international law, there wouldn't be, would there? No. If people respected international law, simple principles of international law, state sovereignty, non-intervention, but they've created these fantastic pretexts, the idea that there is a threat to the US or to Britain from weapons of mass destruction or there's a threat from chemical weapons or that a brutal dictator is killing his own people. They've invented all this rubbish and Western audiences swallow it, have swallowed it to a large degree. If they followed international law, if they'd stayed out of it, if it were really a civil war, it would have been over a very long time ago. Thanks, Tim, once again. Thanks, Jan. This is David Rovix and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55am, 
Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do and everything can change. If you share the growing concern about racism, fascism and the move to the extreme right, come along to our forum on a Bill of Rights for Australia on Sunday the 17th of March at the Unitarian Church, 110 Gray Street, East Melbourne, commencing at 11am. Speakers include Professor Gillian Triggs, Professor Rob Watts, Julian Burnside QC and the Human Rights Law Centre. RSVP to admin at melbourneunitarian.org.au Our democratic rights are under threat. If you care, be there. The Melbourne Unitarian Peace Memorial Church is a 3CR supporter. Kevin Hines Grow delivers gardening and nature-based programs to people of all ages and all abilities. Our programs provide great opportunities for positive personal development and well-being. The Kevin Hines Grow Autumn Fair and Open Day is on Saturday the 30th of March, 9am to 3pm at 39 Weatherby Road, Doncaster. Come along and stock up on plants at our community nursery or learn more about our programs. See you there. Kevin Hines Grow is a 3CR supporter. We've been striking on and off since the 1st of November. All over the world, school-aged kids are on strike to demand action on climate change. In Melbourne, the school strike is running from 12 to 2pm on Friday the 15th of March at the Treasury Building on Spring Street in the city. At 3CR, we believe that action on climate change is urgently required. There will be no community radio on a dead planet. So today, we come together with our friends at Joy 94.9, SIN and Triple R in support of our youth and their message to our leaders to take urgent action on climate change. For more information, go to studentstrikeforclimate.com. The image we are presented with in the corporate media and via politicians is that North Korea is a Stalinist relic, the hermit kingdom, and that regularly famine wipes out great swathes of the population, and that few, if any, outsiders are allowed to visit the country and seek to build closer ties with the people, a people whose lives have been severely limited by US sanctions and the absence of peace since the 1950s. But people do visit, and one such visit was in October last year, when a group of Australian Quakers, led by a Korean who now lives in Australia, they went as tourists with additional opportunities to visit farms and other areas of life in North Korea, adding to many years of involvement in humanitarian work there for the Quakers. Today I'm speaking with Dale Hess, one of those who went to North Korea on that visit, and I asked Dale first to talk about the long history of the Quaker tradition of seeking ways to build peace and carry out humanitarian work worldwide. Quakers have been involved for a long time with um, relief efforts in many ways. Uh, I guess the first one was 
the relief effort for the Arcadians. Britain and France, their empires clashed, and um, Britain decided to ethnically cleanse Nova Scotia of the Arcadians. And in 1775, they expelled 500 Arcadians uh, to Philadelphia, and the Quakers there provided uh, housing and uh, education, health care, and oversaw the time that the Arcadians were there. So that was probably the first time during the American War of Independence, uh, Quakers provided uh, war relief for the inhabitants of Boston. And this is sort of a tricky situation where the Quakers didn't have any papers or uh, official sanctions, but had to negotiate their way through both the American and the British uh, Army forces in order to gain access. Another example would be in um, 1840s, where the Irish famine was a result of crop failure, and Quakers were able to provide a response there with soup kitchens and clothing and grants to start um, local economy. But um, I guess in terms of war, another example would be in the Franco-Prussian War in 1870, where Quakers provided uh, relief to civilian populations in the towns and villages that were devastated by the war. They provided famine relief for Russia between 1891 and 1929. But uh, I guess the major uh, thing that came to worldwide attention was their work during World War One, And this was the time where the American Friends Service Committee was formed. Uh, the American Friends Service Committee combined with the British Friends War uh, Relief Committee, and they worked in a number of places, uh, the Netherlands, France, Serbia, Russia, Poland, and Belgium, and Austria, and also in, in Britain um, with the alien enemies. But what really caught the attention uh, worldwide was their feeding program for children in Germany. And at the peak of this program in 1921, uh, the AFSC was feeding a million German children per day. And they, after that, the American Friends Service Committee provided uh, relief uh, in camps uh, built for refugees from the Spanish Civil War. They were providing food for adults and children in southern France. And at this time, refugees were fleeing from Germany, and the work uh, continued during World War II and afterwards with reconstruction programs. And it was a result of all of those different efforts. In 1947, the American Friends Service Committee and the British Friends Service Council received the Nobel Peace Prize. And the prize was given for 300 years of Quaker efforts to heal the rifts uh, and to oppose war. In particular, it was given for their work during and after World War I and World War II and the feeding of the children and being involved in helping to rebuild Europe. So those were the, the main efforts up until uh, the Korean War. Now, the Korean War offered an opportunity for the American Friends Service Committee and the British Friends Service Council 
to provide relief for the severe malnutrition in South Korea after the war. And they provided materials for refugees to build their own homes. And schools were uh, started, and doctors and nurses were trained. So that was the beginning of the work in South Korea. But the American Friends Service Committee uh, started work in North Korea in 1980. And the work initially began with a people-to-people exchange program. And this is because history has shown that uh, alumni of such exchanges have a more nuanced understanding of different cultures and societies and government systems. And so they can act as a catalyst to start building relationships between countries. And this work continued uh, through the 1980s and 1990s until 1996, when the American Friends Service Committee started to provide humanitarian assistance to North Korea uh, because of the famine, widespread famine there. This program of humanitarian assistance went on to 2005, but as the humanitarian situation stabilized, then there was an opportunity to provide more agricultural assistance and to engage in programs to focus on pragmatic farm-tested interventions to improve long-term food supplies. So this is the, the kinds of things that AFSA was doing. Their workers were involved in partnerships with four cooperative farms, as well as the Academy of Agricultural Sciences and the Kai Yang Sang College of Agriculture. I would imagine that these are the sort of places that you visited when you were there last year. First of all, were there any obstacles placed in the path of you and your colleagues leaving Australia to visit North Korea? There was no problem in North Korea. Uh, originally, we, we had heard about the American Friends Service Committee work on the farms, and so as we were trying to arrange to go to Korea, we asked if we could visit one of the farms, and this is an unusual thing for them because normally when they have tourists, they have set programs, and it, you know we, we, that required special permission. And they had to find out exactly how you go about finding the special permission, who do you have to talk to, how far up the chain of authority do you have to go to have this granted. But after uh, some period of time, we were given approval to visit the farm, which was part of the American Friends Service Committee program. And not only that, but the, the reputation of the American Friends Service Committee work was so impressive to the North Koreans that they expanded the opportunity to visit the farm to allow us to go to three farms instead of just one farm. And also, um, they provided an opportunity for us to speak to two senior officials from the Ministry of Agriculture. So those were extraordinary things that happened because of this relationship with the American Friends Service Committee. We were also granted a visit to the Pyongyang Institute of Vegetable Science and able to talk to the director there. 
So, again, this was another opportunity for us to have things that were not part of the normal tourist programs. Let's talk about some of those places that you visited. First of all, the Institute in Pyongyang. The Institute for Vegetable Science uh, is a huge operation. It's uh, on the outskirts of Pyongyang, and they have many uh, greenhouses, and they are testing ways to increase production of food, particularly things like uh, tomatoes and cucumbers and lettuce and all sorts of different kinds of vegetables. But in our discussions with the director, he asked us if we'd be able to help get new varieties of seeds because of problems with the sanctions and the difficulties of uh, obtaining seeds. They need to have varieties in order to try to deal with the uncertainties of climate change so that by having a wide diversity of seeds, you're able to then be able to provide more reliable food sources under different climatic conditions. Can you explain to me what the sanctions mean for food production? Well, basically, one of the problems of sanctions is they restrict the importation of oil, and this has an impact on the creation of fertilizer. Also, the the sanctions sort of uh, depress the ability for the government to provide capital to get tractors and farm machinery, and so the uh, ability to fully produce food is restricted. Also restricts the variety of food, is that what you're saying? Um, Apparently they're having uh, difficulties in obtaining a variety of seeds for the different kinds of experiments that they want to uh, uh, try to uh, increase food production. Talk about the cooperative farms you visited and the people working there and, and, and what they're planting, what they're doing. They have um, both uh, field crops. These are are communes, uh, so they're uh, about 1,000 to uh, 1,500 people living on these communes. We were there at a time uh, of the rice harvest, so most of the work is done by hand because of the lack of farm machinery. And so they they were harvesting the rice crop. They were doing some threshing. They also have many greenhouses. These are huge buildings where uh, they're growing a variety of of crops in the greenhouses in controlled conditions. Communes that we visited basically are supplying food uh, for the area around Ponyang, the capital. It was a very impressive operation that they having not only the, the food production in the greenhouses and in the fields, but all around the houses where people live. Each family would plant their own crops for um, their, their own use, uh, and you know they would have double cropping of, um, say, lettuce and onions, and so that um, they, they were 
using techniques that were uh, renewable in, in terms of green uh, manure fertilizers. But, you know, it's very back-breaking kind of work because every, almost everything has to be done by hand. Uh, so uh, it was very impressive. In, in the communes, they would have uh, facilities for schools and uh, medical facilities. They would have recreational facilities. So that, um, you know, it was really uh, a little village in, in the commune. What do they replace the lack of oil-based fertilizers with? Well, um, basically, they're, they're using green manure, so that um, just the using the, the stubble from the rice and other agricultural outputs to create um, a fertilizer, and, as well as, you know, the manure from animals. Did you see many animals? We didn't see a lot, no. Get a chance to talk to the people? We were able to talk to some of the managers of the communes uh, briefly, but the whole tour was very tightly controlled in terms of time so that we didn't have a lot of time to talk to people and we were more able to try to make you know initial contact rather than to get into deep discussions. The other thing is that they kept us separate from the, the, the general public in our tour so that everything was sort of self-contained. We were taken to um, various sites and then uh, there would be a guide who would explain what was happening at that particular place. We were often allowed, you know, a time for a few questions, but then we'd have to move on to the next place. So there were time constraints as well as separation constraints. And I suppose knowing the history of the, the long antagonism and more than that by the US to the people of North Korea, that the people have a good, a good reason to be paranoid in one sense. Yeah, that they are very careful. It's a, a very controlled kind of understanding of government, but they very much would like to reconcile with the South so that this would be a huge benefit to them economically, but also socially and uh, politically. And the South wants to reconcile as well. And so if they were able to do that, then that whole area would really grow in, in terms of both the agricultural production, but also economic, general economic production. The problem with this is, you know, just how do you do it? I mean, the, the main obstacle, of course, is um, the United States is uh, not in favor of the reconciliation. But at the moment, they're talking about one country with two systems so that from the North Korean point of view, they would be part of the South, but they'd still maintain their own system. Now, how that actually works in practice is not clear, um, because once you allow the influences of large corporations and other influences to come into the North, then things are going to change. So it's a time of transition where, yes, uh, they're open to the ideas of change, but they want to try to control how this is done. Can you talk a little about 
Pyongyang. It's a, a city that was totally destroyed by the US bombing during the Korean War. It's been completely rebuilt since then. Yes. What's uh, it like? That's right. Well, it's a planned city so that their streets are laid out in a very organized way, very wide streets, very little traffic. And a lot of that is due both to the sanctions but also to um, lack of income to buy cars. So you see people walking and riding bicycles. It's a relaxed situation because of the lack of traffic. But the, the buildings went through a period where they were basically the Soviet-style architecture. Uh, so these big, massive buildings. And more recently, Kim uh, Jong-un has uh, had these buildings painted in pastel colors. So uh, instead of the old gray buildings now, they're quite striking in different colors. But there's been a new style of architecture that has been introduced, and these are very, very ultra-modern buildings and lovely designs, very creative. So uh, you get this diversity of architectural design there. Where did you stay? We stayed at uh, one of the main hotels, the Kuryong Hotel, which had about 45 floors, rotating restaurant on the top floor. I think it was a four-star hotel. Many tourists, apart from yourselves? There, there were tourists. There were Chinese tourists, so very few Europeans. So the, quite a lot of tourists uh, from China or Taiwan. Did you get out into the speak to people in the city itself? Did you a lot of people, when they go to places, they go and visit a hospital or they go and visit a school. Did you do any of that sort of touristy uh, things? Yeah, with the tour, we, we saw a wide variety of places, which included schools and children's palace, which is a, a place where they take very talented young people and teach them art and music and theater and dancing. But we saw the National Library, we saw a Buddhist temple, we went to the factory, uh, we saw an art gallery, places where they were teaching English and computer science. We, we went to circus, uh, which was basically acrobatic performances. We, we saw the subway, beautiful art in the subway, murals on the walls, very striking. We went to the Haiyang Gansung Mountain, which is a beautiful area uh, in the north. Uh, we saw Friendship House, uh, which is a huge building where they collect all of the gifts that um, they have officially received uh, and through diplomatic efforts. We went to this pageant called the Glorious Country, which was held in the Mayday Stadium. Mayday Stadium is the largest stadium in the world, holds about 150,000 people. Yeah, so, so we saw you know, a wide variety of things, as well as going to the DMZ, saw the museum there. Is that a museum from the war times? Okay, 
the, the DMZ is the separation zone of separation between the north and the south. It, it runs from coast to coast over 250 kilometers, and it's about four kilometers deep. And at the entry point from the north is a reception center with a, a museum where they show about the negotiations and the uh, battle of, of uh, the Korean War. And then we went to the actual place where they held the disarmament negotiations, uh, Armistice Hall, and there's another museum just next to that. And then we saw uh, the joint security buildings where um, they carry out negotiations uh, at the present time. I'd imagine, Dale, this was your first visit. Were there any surprises, anything that you saw that you didn't think you might see? Yeah, I think one of the things that was striking to me, just outside of the main railway station in Pyongyang, in the morning, between 7 and 9 in the morning, a group of women, maybe 50, 60 women, will be standing opposite the train station and they are all dressed in uniforms and they have um, big flags on poles that they wave so they do this in various patterns and what they're doing is they're welcoming the workers as they're coming to work and they're encouraging them to do the best that they can for that day I think this is a fantastic idea (laughs) that um, they're being encouraged you know, today, you know, do the best you can. What's the follow-up for the group? We have made initial contacts uh, in terms of agriculture. We'd like to promote sustainable agriculture, and so we're hoping to have a group of four of our group to go back in June to visit a farm uh, in south of Pyongyang and to talk about uh, a training program in permaculture to try to explore with them what they would like us to do, what we could do with the resources that we have. So it's very much an exploratory time. But um, we'd like to find out more about what their needs are and how we might be able to assist them. That's all I have. Dale, is there anything that you'd like to add before we finish? Well, it was a wonderful experience. We felt safe being there uh, all the time. We would like to build on this experience to create peaceful relationships, to try to counter uh, some of the hysteria that is in the media, because we think that um, knowing the the people is uh, the way to actually build relationships between our countries and to try to contribute to the welfare of each other. Well, thank you. Well, thank you very much for offering me this opportunity. And that was David Hess talking about his recent visit to North Korea and also the history or some of the long long and varied history of the, the Quaker movement with peace and humanitarian aid work in many countries around the world and as David Dale said they'll be returning or some of them will be returning in June this year to continue 
the work of Australian Quakers with the people of North Korea. Coming up to five minutes to six o'clock. If you share the growing concern about racism, fascism and the move to the extreme right, come along to our forum on a Bill of Rights for Australia on Sunday the 17th of March at the Unitarian Church, 110 Grey Street, East Melbourne, commencing at 11am. Speakers include Professor Gillian Triggs, Professor Rob Watts, Julian Burnside QC and the Human Rights Law Centre. RSVP to admin at melbourneunitarian.org.au Our democratic rights are under threat. If you care, be there. The Melbourne Unitarian Peace Memorial Church is a 3CR supporter. Marxism 2019 is Australia's biggest socialist conference, taking place this Easter long weekend from April the 18th to the 21st in Melbourne. Marxism 2019 features international and local guest speakers, including award-winning author and activist Baruz Buchani. Join over 1,000 activists for crucial discussions on how to resist the rise of the right and rebuild the left. With more than 100 sessions, tickets start at just $35 and are available at marxismconference.org. A 3CR supporter. Well, that is all for me for today. And I will be back next Tuesday at 4 o'clock. But stay tuned in just a couple of minutes for Dunbar Law and I'll go out with Song for the Eureka Stockade with David Rovix. Bye for now.